0: Everybody comfy, everybody cozy, because it's going to be a while. New chairs. All right, um, you know, uh, before we get started, can we thank Tim and Jen again for coming all the way down? I'm always surprised um, at uh, events like VisionCast, and you know, we've got uh, more than one teacher, how God kind of shows up and coordinates things. Rick, was, you were gone like all the month of July. Uh, I was gone for a couple weeks in August. We didn't have a chance to talk about this much. And yet, uh, you know, we had the, the theme, of course, kind of sorted out and just a few conversations about how God will weave these things together. So I think uh, as we spend time together, I want you to remember what Rick shared with us last night and then see how God managed to stitch some things together uh, in his own will. Let me say a quick prayer and then we're going to start with a video. Um, God, thank you for this opportunity to come before you today, um, to sing your praises, to worship you, to be together. We pray that you would be pleased and that your spirit would guide us today uh, through all of our activities, through all the learning, through all the teaching, through all the experience. May we be made to look more like you, that humble servant, and in so doing, give you glory. I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. All right, I'd like you to watch the nerdiest video I've seen in a long time.
1: Hi, everyone. It's Chad I'm going to be here to cast this weekend, but I hope everyone's having a great time. Dan asked me to record a brief video just to give an introduction to what I do for living. I work with Calibration, where we manufacture a wide variety of test and measurement equipment that is used by calibration labs around the world to calibrate test equipment. Normally, that just means doing a periodic verification, maybe once a year or so, of the test equipment that we send into the lab. Lab makes the library measurements, make sure that everything is measuring correctly and accurately, and they stamp their seal approval, certify it, and send it back out the door. Yeah. However, sometimes that equipment comes in, and perhaps a component has failed, or something has drifted out of specification, and it's no longer measuring accurately, it's no longer performing as it was originally designed. And when that happens, uh, that's where the alignment or adjustment process comes in. is also part, part of calibration. And that's where we make corrections to ensure that everything is operating correctly and able can make corrections back again. And then, once we do that, we can recertify <laughs> everything, stand with that same scale and send it back out into the world to do whatever job it was needed uh, in its environment. So, that's what I do after calibration, and I uh, hope everyone has a good time with VisionCast. Bye bye.
0: Woo! <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. <laughs> my pocket protector. <laughs> you actually had a an, huh? Is that Chad Dodds or what? <laughs> Every He's got an oscilloscope there at the dining room table. All right, so, so the key thing there is, I want you to hear what Chad did. There's equipment here that's supposed to measure stuff, and, and when it's not measuring things correctly, somebody needs to recalibrate it. It needs to be readjusted, right? So this little talk, the title of this was to recalibrate, right? So in in the process of reviving, we reviewed last night. Now today we're going to talk about recalibrating, changing the way, correcting the way we measure in in ways that would be more accurate. Before we go on, I I don't care who does this, I'm going to give you three verses. Look these up because I'm going to call on you to read them later. Okay? So look them up with this in mind. I'm going to call on you to read them with a nice strong voice. 2 Corinthians 4... 17 through 18. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. Somebody else, please look up Hebrews 12, 1 through 8. Hebrews 12, 1 through 8. And finally, Philippians 3, 10 through 14. Philippians 3, 10 through 14. I will call on you later. Now, we tend to get focused on a kind of success in our lives that we were never wired to achieve. We're not focused on the things we should be focused on, and that affects everything. When we're not focused on the right thing, when it comes to achievement and success in our life, it affects everything else in our lives. To illustrate, let me appeal to some traditional gender roles here, but even if they don't quite fit for you, I hope you can catch what I'm saying. Get your Me Too signs out. I think you're going to need them. Guys, have you ever gone through a normal workday? And what I mean by normal is that you didn't get everything done that needed to be done. You were under-resourced, overtaxed, misunderstood, and underpaid. Now, you may like parts of your job, maybe even most of your job, but the fact is it really costs you on a daily basis. Then you slump into the car with a sigh, endure the combination of blood sport and freak show that is I-5, and arrive arrive at your doorstep in the same darkness that you left in the morning. There will be no time to work on that project you've been thinking about for months, and there's no money to do it anyway. So you let the thought slip away again. As you open the door, you feel a cloud of heaviness descend on your soul. You sense that whole new set of unachievable demands are about to be made on you. A weight fills your chest a kind of low-grade anger and annoyance really wraps itself around your consciousness as you step over the threshold and you find yourself wondering how your life wound up like this and there is no way out. Women, maybe you're the one standing on the other side of that door. A 12-hour day has just evaporated before your eyes. The laundry is not yet done. You have literally cleaned the kitchen three times and it's still a mess. You have driven a total of 74 miles and never left the city limits. (laughs) Your teenage daughter hates you and has retreated to her fortress of a room. The fifth grader announces that they have a field trip tomorrow and you've been volunteered to chaperone. Then the front door opens and your backup arrives. Your partner, your knight in shining armor, who has been blessed with the gift of a job outside this madhouse. He's returned to save you from all this, but something on his face tells you he's not really here. And frankly, he's not very happy to be home. You sense that the whole new set of unachievable demands are about to be made on you. It may not end up in an out-and-out fight like it does some nights, but home certainly won't be a place of safety, rest, and refreshing for anyone. And for both people in these roles, there's always tomorrow to look forward to this is the list of chores left undone the taxes the oil change the debt the people at church telling me that i should be in a small group and serve in a ministry and give more you're welcome now maybe the roles are a little different the age and number of kids varies maybe it's a roommate instead of a spouse etc but let's everybody if you had your me too sign up at least once in those stories any, yeah, okay, all right. So you see, the experience of being overwhelmed and having life run over you is nearly universal in Western culture. Very few of us feel like we're a success. We tend to calibrate our success based on what the world tells us, and more specifically, on what the people immediately around us project. In other words, if your neighbor has a cute little wife and a well-behaved dog and a well-maintained lawn, odds are you will see that as a success. If you don't have those things, well, then you're obviously a failure because that's what you've calibrated to. You might be surprised at the number of people over the years who have said to me with a straight face, wow, Dan, it must be great at your house. I mean, it must be honest. I know you and Brenda just sit around and sing around the piano and you... (laughs) Shut up, Rick. It's not... Dude, it's not that funny. I mean, <laughs> <Ah-ha>! yeah, oh, <laughs> right? Your kids are all perfectly well behaved, and you all sit like this, oh, Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Every morning it's a little worship service, right? I mean, people come up with a straight face, and this is what they think you know, a church leader's life is, is, is like. Yeah, it's still laughing, right? But we've just shown that this isn't true, right? That this, this isn't the case, every single one of us. The sense of defeat and weariness is universal. It visits our house for sure, just ask my family. So the success that you see in the lives around you is just as much as an illusion as your own sense of failure. The degree of sec- success you think you see in all the houses around you, it's just as much an illusion as your own sense of failure. Why? Because we're, we're not calibrated properly. The truth is, some of you arrived here at Vision Cast feeling defeated, feeling like you're unsuccessful. And the truth is, some of you, if you arrive at church every week feeling the same and hoping for something to happen that will change all that something to change your loss into a win, a a bit of new information that you never got before, some bit of inspiration that Rick is responsible for giving you, the change in your circumstances that will add more money to the bank account, more love into your life, more self-discipline, more freedom, more hope, more joy. And if you're shooting at those things and hoping for success, you are shooting at the wrong target. You're shooting at an illusion. All right, you ready for the hard part? Because the truth is that that almost never happens. It almost never happens. Perhaps that's because we need to redefine success. We need to recalibrate. We need to understand where our focus really should be, what we should be shooting at. Look at the picture of this man right here. His name is Matt Amons, and he is an Olympic sharpshooter. It's a very specific thing, and you can tell by this picture uh, that he's been pretty successful at this. Uh, He's done really well, except in 2004 at the Athens Games. This was somebody knows this story, right? So Matt is there, and he is right in line. He's going to get the gold medal. He's it's, it's all wrapped up except for this last round. And so these sharpshooters, this is really specific, super really detailed stuff that they have to do. And he's in shooting from the prone position laying down. And if you're a sharpshooter, then it's this whole process you go through of calming yourself. You actually become aware of your heartbeat so that you can time the squeeze of the trigger between heartbeats because a heartbeat can make that gun jump. You time your breathing just right. Matt lines up perfectly, gets the sights in there, gets connected with his heartbeat, squeezes the trigger, bam, bullseye, nails it. But he looks up to see a red flag, which means you're you screwed up dude it's like bullseye he shot the wrong target look at the next picture this is matt right after this that's his wife trying to comfort matt dead on bullseye wrong target another way to see this cosmic universal sense of failure is like being confronted with a jigsaw puzzle that we can't fit together into a meaningful picture A meaningful life none of the pieces seem to fit the picture on the box we can't find all the edges and we get very frustrated so we begin looking for missing pieces we keep adding more and more pieces to the jigsaw puzzle until the entire table is covered and there's not even room to rearrange them anymore it's a bigger mess than when we started what i'm suggesting to you today is that we don't need to add more pieces We don't need to change our circumstances. Most of us don't need a different job. Certainly not a different spouse or a bigger house. Studies have shown over and over again that more money doesn't drive away that sense of failure. Your circumstances aren't the problem. Here's another truth. Most of us in this room were born, will live and will die having lived an average life. Yay? (laughs) We will work, we will enjoy our vacations, hate the dentist, we will get sick, we will be healed, but we will eventually grow old and die, and our names will be forgotten within three generations. (laughs) Yay? (laughs) But you see, yeah, Those are the circumstances of every life in this room. Your unique tragedies and victories don't really amount to much when we take the long view, do they? So we must find a new focus for our happiness. Adding more puzzle pieces to a puzzle that will simply be scrambled again after 78.7 years on average will... It makes no sense, and we know it. Just getting more love, more stuff, more experiences doesn't help. We need to stand back and look at the puzzle that we already have differently. We need a bigger view, an eternal view. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. Whoever's got that, please read it out in a big, strong voice. Is but what, is is what is seen is temporary everything you encounter in this newtonian universe is temporary including your own body what is unseen is eternal this is astoundingly good news given the fact that we're all average and going to die this is astoundingly good news If we adopted this view of life, then we'd be skipping across the threshold at the end of the day. We would throw our arms open and welcome the joy of whatever came crossing over that threshold, right? If we really believed that, every day would be different. So why don't we live this way? Why don't we do it? I can't speak for everyone, but sometimes I'm reluctant to talk about, uh, to even let myself think about the fact that we are made for eternity Because it's the spookiest, sometimes hardest to remember part of our faith. Anybody got a Me Too sign on this? It's hard to remember this. It's sometimes I don't believe it. It's the part that often feels like myth to us, the part we don't want to talk about because if we're honest, maybe we're not sure about it at all. Is it really true? I live in a world where seeing is believing. And this Bible is specifically asking me to do what seems irrational. To do something that gets me called names on Facebook and in the media. Any Me Too's? (laughs) Somebody out here is on Facebook. Yeah. Look, I, I said to a friend of mine just two days ago, only fools never doubt. We all have our doubts. It's not easy to hold on to the idea of a perfect eternity when everything and nearly everyone around you shouts that this physical life is all that there is. And all I can say here is me too. I doubt it too. But don't stop with the doubt. Speak it out. Rick talked about this last night. This is Elijah in the cave when he stands out there and just speaks out. His doubt, remind your brain of the facts that point to an eternal universe. Yes, there is evidence for it. Remind your heart with God's words, with worshiping together in his presence. Remind your soul with walks on the beach or in the woods later today, with solitary prayer and with reading the wisdom of biblical and historical heroes who have doubted before you. Too often we bury our doubt and it kind of tends to grow like mold or mildew. Instead, we need to expose our doubt to the light. When we we don't, we do ourselves a great disservice. We miss out on a source of great strength. We miss the opportunity to recalibrate and therefore we can see our workaday lives instead as this beautiful opportunity. Instead of a, is this all there is kind of experience. Let's give each other permission and encourage one another to think about heaven. We should do this more often. We need to remind each other when we're going through not just hardship, but maybe just a normal everyday, really seriously. Uh, Statistically speaking, I got another 30 some years of this. Yeah, but it's leading to something, Hazen. Somebody remind me of that every now and again. I need that. It's okay. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says we're supposed to encourage one another with these words. Remind each other. We, you know, we tell ourselves it's not mature to sit around and spin yarns about heaven. It's irrational and unproductive. It doesn't help the homeless and the dying much. And it's true. If we spent all our time sitting around and just waiting for the end, making up stories about whether there will be football or pedicures in heaven, well, a lot of what Jesus commanded us to do would go undone. There's an old saying, right? You're too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. But can we agree that maybe we've overcompensated a little bit in our Western achievement-oriented society? The world has sort of beat any hope of heaven out of us. It tends to do that. You know, when I returned to the faith, I had left it and was angry. I was resistant. I was hostile to the Christian God for seven or eight years. When I returned to the faith, I was 28 years old and I had a lot of questions I went through a class that was kind of a precursor to what is now AC3 Investigations class. But as I looked back on that class several years later, I I think I was studying Revelation at the time, I realized that I had returned to my faith in Christ with absolutely no questions about heaven or eternity ever occurring to me or having been answered. In other words, I accepted Christ with no thought to the eternal whatsoever, My faith was based entirely on the truth of who Jesus is and what it means to follow Him now. That was it. I was, oh, right, oh, I forgot. When I signed up for this Jesus thing, I get eternal life. That was kind of how it worked for me. Now, in some ways, that has been a good thing. But in terms of maintaining hope, in keeping hardship and failure, pleasure and success in their proper places... It's been a burden. I forget where I'm supposed to be calibrated. I need to be recalibrated on a regular basis with the knowledge that I was not made for this world. That the experiences I'm having, good, bad, and indifferent, will not finally matter when all that is left are the things that finally matter. When all the chaff and all the junk is burned away, Everything that I've experienced, the love, the hate, the pleasure, the pain, all that stuff, it's gone. It finally doesn't matter. Uh, I'm part of a a, a group called the Northumbria Community, and part of our uh, practice is to say regular prayers each day. Can we take a look at this? This is from the Celtic Daily Prayer, and this is the midday, this is at the ending of the midday prayer. And this is the most meaningful bit of liturgy to me because it helps me remember from 28 on. I kind of forgot I, that the physical world's going to go away and that there's a heaven, but this helps me remember at least once a day in the middle of the day at the end of our little office let nothing disturb thee, nothing affright thee. All things are passing. God never changeth. Patient endurance attaineth to all things. Who God possesseth, and nothing is wanting. Alone, God sufficeth. Don't be afraid that the only way to deploy this way of thinking is to become some sort of you know, barefoot, hemp-wearing, you know, loose wheel that turns every conversation into some kind of magical mystery tour about heaven. You don't have to become a freak to recalibrate properly. I mean, you may already be a freak, that's fine. Welcome to Allen Creek. (laughs) No, in fact, the results of recalibrating to heavenly thinking are very practical. It changes practical things. I love this quote from Barbara Brown. One common problem for people who believe that God has only one particular job in mind for them is that it is almost never the job they are presently doing. This means that those who are busiest trying to figure out God's purpose for their lives are often the least purposeful about the work they are already doing. They can look right through the people they work with since those people are not players in the divine plan. They find ways to do their work without investing very much in it since that work is not part of the divine plan. The mission to read God's mind becomes a strategy for keeping their minds off their present unhappiness until they become like ghosts going through the motions of the people they once were but no longer wish to be. When you recalibrate to eternal things, your factory job suddenly becomes ministry. When you recalibrate to the eternal, putting out real estate signs suddenly becomes evangelism, compassion, whatever it is that you do, your unemployment, your L&I check, whatever it is, your homemaking, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him, Colossians chapter 3. The recalibration doesn't change your circumstances. The recalibration changes you and your view of the circumstances. And it becomes ministry. It becomes holy. It becomes filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. American poet, environmentalist, and Christian Wendell Berry wrote a poem in the 1970s. And so it is, in a very real sense, prophetic for the 21st century. And it contrasts thinking uh, calibrated to the world with eternal calibration. I love this. Wendell Berry. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made? Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die? And you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So friends, every day, do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance for what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium, plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant and that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that prophet. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to carrion. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs. That are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near giving birth? Go with your love to the fields. Lie down in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail. The way you didn't go, be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary. Some in the wrong direction. I love Wendell Berry. Guy's my hero. His final word, practice resurrection. You know, the scriptures reveal an additional dimension to seeing the eternal within our temporal, and that is discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 8. Who's got that? Read it out. Nice strong voice.
2: your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted your punishment. And you have completely forgotten the word for encouragement that, that addresses you as father, as the father addresses his son. It says, My son, do not make light of your discipline. You may not lose heart. He because the Lord disciplines the one be loves, and as seen that everyone he accepts as his sin. When your hardship was disciplined. God is treating you as double.
0: We too often read discipline as punishment. That's how we hear it in our ears. Discipline equals punishment. And sometimes it is. But it is also training. It is refinement. It is growth and progress. And yes, hardship. But it is change and transformation. When we calibrate to the eternal, when we are permitting God, then then we are permitting God to leverage the everyday hardships for training. Because you are living your eternal life now. Ever thought about that? Your eternal spirit is operative. It's not like one switch is going to be turned off when you die and another switch flipped and suddenly you have a harp and the wings and a little halo you're living it now. It's just very, very early in your eternal life. It's very, very early. You're young. We, as uh, many of you know, my family went on a little pilgrimage uh, for the first two weeks in, um, in August. That's us setting off on a 60 mile walk down St. Oswald's Way in Northeast England. And I, I really nagged, I kind of nagged, didn't I? A little bit about training to, to get ready for this. I've done some long-distance hiking. Uh, Tim, my son-in-law, has done some. The others, not as much. And so I'm like, we got to get out and train. Robin, the youngest, like, I don't want it, I don't want it. and here was the talk when we were heading up Getchell Hill with 40 pounds on our back. Ugh. You can either experience a little pain now within a quarter mile of your bed, or you're going to experience a lot of pain out in the middle of nowhere in northeast England. We train now for what's coming later. And even then, guess what? Everybody gets sore feet when they walk. But it's training. Yeah, five sets of shoes. We got one more? after this, Was that the end of it? That was it. Yeah, that was our hike. <laughs> five sets of shoes. Philippians 3, 10 through 14. Who's got that? and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize which God has called in Christ even. We press forward, we train, we understand that there is an eternal goal. So, we see that calibrating to eternity brings us two things it transforms our common, even painful, and otherwise wasted efforts into something lasting, and it trains us for eternity. Uh, the best illustration I have of this is a little thing called Project VA. Anybody remember Project VA? Yeah, that just means in Portuguese to go. And it was our first ever foreign mission trip um, back in 2005. This was down there uh, in Brazil. And it was a a big deal for Allen Creek. It was a huge deal for me. I could have cared less about foreign missions before God spoke to me one day and said, guess what, Hazen? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take a group of people on a foreign mission trip. And I'm like, what? Are you kidding? No, he wasn't kidding, apparently. I go to Rick, go to the elders. And they said, yeah, this might be good timing. We'd resisted foreign missions up to that point because we were still a church plant trying to, you know, get things right. I said, yeah, let's, let's explore that. Make a long story short, God orchestrates some stuff together. We pull together what is Project VA. 23 people head down to Mossoró, Brazil. I think we ended up, by the time it was all done in the bookkeeping, that, that trip we spent $70,000 uh, to get those people there and back to do all the work that we did. Sharon Allender, who was supposed to be here this weekend, I think they're sick, right? Sharon Allender put so much work into writing an original script for us. We brought Allen Creek-style ministry to to our mission partners down there to show them how they could be culturally relevant. So we put on this four-part show. We did it twice. Wayne Clinton built sets that we could break down and go into luggage that we brought with us. We brought an entire band of instruments. We brought a drum set, bass guitar, uh, guitar, trumpets, all this other... We left it all there for the students at the school. We taught English in their classrooms. We dug a septic tank hole that was how deep was that thing? Nine feet, nine feet deep, twelve feet wide, twenty feet long, with a shabanka they call it. It sounds just—that's exactly what it. Shabanka, shabanka. That's why they're going. We worked our butts off down there. The the people on that team. Worked so hard. And, and here's, here's the upshot. Can we go to the next one? This is the fun one. Can you see the guy on the left there? Look at that young Wayne Clinton. That was just 11 years ago. Look at that punk. Yeah. We were there for two weeks. It was hard. And, and here's the upshot. I still to this day don't know what came out of it because really the only thing I know for sure is that a lot of people got hurt. There's only four of us left from that group of 23 here at AC3. Marriages ended. All kinds of crap happened down in Brazil. Turned out, we heard from our partners there, that several of the youth down there, they kind of got bit by the American disease. They thought, hey, these Americans are cool. I want to be this way. And they ended up leaving the church. Got exactly the wrong message. wasn't the message we were preaching. Somehow they picked it. It It was a mess. All kinds of bad stuff happened stuff i still don't know about turns out i was the den mother i didn't know it all kinds of stuff it was just terrible and for years after, yeah this is how this is why we went down for these kids you know but all kinds of stupid stuff happened out of it i to this day i'm still still wondering what was the point then in 2009 our partner's asked me, it was a great honor, to come down and do a ministry evaluation. There's a Christian school and a church plant in a, you know, pretty, pretty decent-sized operation. They wanted somebody with fresh eyes to come in and evaluate their ministry, and they asked me to do it. So um, I came down. I spent nearly a month down there and, uh, you know, did surveys and interviewed people and observed and pulled together a report for them. But in the midst of it, towards the end, um, went to a, a local store to pick up flip-flops for the girls to bring home, right? Because Brazilian flip-flops are the thing. So I'm standing in line, and I happened to be with my interpreter. They kind of assigned me. I know just enough Portuguese to get my face slapped anywhere in Brazil. <laughs> but um, so I had an interpreter with me, and we're standing in line in the store. You know, one of those rat maze lines, like you have to go in the air, that sort of thing. So I'm standing there, and we're chit-chatting. I got my arms loaded with uh, stuff that I'm going to buy. This is now um, uh, almost five years after we had gone down in 05, and I'm standing there in, in this line, and all of a sudden I kind of hear shouted out over the crowd, uh, Escupa, e, Escupa, Ivo e say, e Ivo say, baterista e cantor, no eh? And I'm trying to translate in my head, like, you know, what did you do to my sister? No, that's not it. <laughs> and, but that's kind of how it sounded, you know. And so I'm translating, Ivo e say, baterista e cantor, no eh? And I can kind of see the crowd moving. And as I'm translating it, and I, this guy's coming toward me. And I'm going, uh, you know, do I need to run? What? And all of a sudden, I put it together. And he says, you, you're a drummer and a singer, right? Yeah, and I'm like, am I a rock star in Brazil? <laughs> did, did that little recording we made in 1987 hit big in Brazil? And I didn't know. So he comes up and, my, and just starts going, and I, now I'm lost. Now, that was kind of, that's about how fast I can translate Portuguese. So my translator is doing this right in my ear, as this guy comes up and takes my hand with both his hands and starts to do this thing, right? And uh, so here's the story. In 05, on a spontaneous thing that we hadn't planned, our host took, um, Wayne, you were there on that trip. Where are you, Wayne? There. Yeah, Allie and a couple of others out to a drug rehab, a residential drug rehab facility, of which there was only one in the entire state of Rio Grande de Norche. Six million people. One one drug rehab place. Residential, men's, there was about 25 guys. We went out there, brought a battery-powered keyboard, a hand drum, and an acoustic guitar. We spent a couple hours crying with these guys. Most of us who went are also recovered addicts. So we could talk about recovery. We prayed, We sang. It was just, it was such a great day. As I look back on it now, it was one of the best days in that trip. And this guy is now standing here pumping my hands, is telling me the story. He goes, don't you remember? You came out and met us on that day. I'm like, oh, I'd forgotten. He says, my name is Amsterdam, Amsterdam. They name their kids, I don't know why they do this in Brazil, Amsterdam. <laughs> and he says, I remember that day because the day after you left, I accepted Christ as my Savior. And then I went to school. And now I'm a missionary and I go to drug rehab places all around Brazil and share the gospel. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm standing there. <laughs> you know? Because, you know, God didn't need to do that. In that town of a million people that i run into this guy in a checkout line. Seriously? Seriously? God didn't need to do that, but it recalibrated me. The fact is, what you're picking up and putting down at your work-a-day job and your sore feet and your exhausted, overtaxed brain, you have no idea what God is building in eternity right now. Recalibrate, friends. There is hope, there is joy, and it is all present to you in your circumstances. Right now, only see it. Only see it. Let me pray for you. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever He may send you. May He guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storm. And may He bring you home rejoicing at the wonders He has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.